Hello, and thank you for joining us on this live stream. I am coming to you live today from the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank, headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. And we wanted to talk to you today, given that there is a lot of banking sector turmoil. Now, I'm sure you can appreciate we cannot uh, comment directly on the historic takeover of Credit Suisse by uh, UBS, but I feel like I can state the uh, factual obvious, which is that the S&P 500 finished up yesterday. Uh, with that, let me pass it on to uh, Sasha, who is going to talk about, you know, the, the he's our financial equity sector strategist. And Sasha, can you summarize uh, briefly you know, what's been going on and what's our view? Thank you, Mark. Sure. I mean, it has, as you already stated, been a very challenging time for banks. And what we've seen over the last 10 days in the banking industry can easily be described as a crisis of confidence. Clients, but also investors, they started to get worried about the side effects from the rapidly rising interest rates and what it actually means for the bond and swap portfolios. The banks hold on their balance sheet. They hold it there mainly for asset liability management purposes. Now, this escalated quickly. It turned then to funding and liquidity issues. And what we see in situations like that is that the vulnerability normally comes from actually two angles. It's the banks with the weak balance sheets or the banks that have idiosyncratic issues, like, for example, going through a challenging restructuring process. The first failure we saw was the Silicon Valley Bank, a US regional bank, which was specialized in tech lending. It experienced significant outflows from its very concentrated depositor base, which then spilled over to other small banks like Signature Bank and First Republic. And the latest bank that ran into trouble was then in Switzerland. We all know it. Credit Suisse experienced massive outflows of client funds and eventually could only be saved by a takeover from UBS. This was just announced last Sunday. Now, the obvious question for investors is, what does this actually mean for the other banks? And let me start with the unrealized losses, what you should see now, which actually caused the problem in the first place. Um, what you hear clearly here you see is a difference between the US and, and uh, European banks. The gray bars are the common equity tier one ratios as of Q, Q4, and the red dots basically are the capital ratios adjusted for these unrealized losses. Now in the US, we expect unrealized losses of more than 600 billion. Um, the same amount for European banks is significantly less uh, below 100 billion. This means, and you see that on the slide here, also that the starting point is a different one. So higher capital levels in Europe means that we only expect about 40 basis points of capital hit for the European banks. This brings the performer common equity tier one ratio to a range of 30.5 to 14%. In the US, the outcome is a bit wider. You see that on the left-hand side of the chart, with especially the large banks being in a better position to absorb the capital hits from unrealized losses. But it's important to keep in mind that unrealized losses are paper losses, exactly. Um, on this slide, you see it here. So these are paper losses. Bank hold the securities to manage interest rate risk. And that the losses only crystallize if banks are forced to sell them due to liquidity needs like um, deposit outflows. So liquidity considerations becomes a key focus. And one way to look at this is what you see here on the slide. That's the liquidity coverage ratio. It compares the high quality liquid assets the banks have 
versus stressed outflows over a 30 day period. All banks, all banks meet the requirement, but it's particularly the European banks again that built up their liquidity buffers during the pandemic. They have liquidity coverage ratios of more than 160% and this broad base across the individual institutions. So liquidity is clearly there. There's also a very important support obviously from the central bank liquidity backstops, but the market has started to zoom in now very quickly on banks which are perceived to have liquidity issues often with a sell first and ask questions later approach. In this environment, we think actually it's too early to shift to the sector. We don't expect a systemic contagion, but the sector's cost of equity is likely to remain higher for longer. We are least preferred on the sector in the US and neutral in Europe, and we recommend clients to reduce excess exposure and to diversify into other sectors. Within the banking sector, our preference is clearly for the large banks, the strong capital levels, diversified best business mixes, and as well as strong de deposit franchises in their home markets. It's these banks that are likely to benefit from a flight to quality as clients are looking for stability. Okay, thank you for that uh, summary. And now we're gonna go on to Elena, who has been very busy uh, talking about the credit side of what's going on with banks. And, uh, you know, I have to give her a shout out because she canceled her vacation to be around this week to talk to clients, which she has been doing. So Elena, talk to us about the financial credit and what you're expecting from here. Well, the recent turbulence in the banking sector has led to higher risk premium for the sector, uh, high sector quality bonds. So we have seen that the sector overall, the banking sector should remain under scrutiny for a while, which will likely result into higher volatility of bank bonds compared to non-financial peers. So we still, we think that within the limits of prudent diversification and, and overall se con sector concentration risk, this sector still offers investment opportunity, both for European and US banks. So what in the, in, within the sector, we think that there is quality, as Sasha told us, we mean the se sector fundamentals are solid. There is higher volatility, which means opportunity, but it's important to really focus on large, well-capitalized bank, which operates with a strong balance sheet, they're stable and they have a stable and well-diversified funding base and healthy credit metrics. That's essential. So we think that this bank should be in a good position to withstand the current uncertainty and the market fragility. And within the banks and within the capital structures, which has been a lot under scrutiny in the past few days, we prefer senior bonds as they remain very well protected by a large amount of loss absorbing capital. So moving to loss absorbing capital. So talking about subordinated and junior subordinated bonds of bank, we have to say that these instruments have been designed on purpose to absorb losses in order to protect deposit and senior creditors. So while we have only seen very few events of loss absorption since the new instruments were introduced after the global financial crisis in 2008. The reason uh, for the higher yields of such bonds has precisely been the risk. So we, uh, we have seen yesterday that the subordinated debt market was all over the place with huge repricing. We expect the process of investors digesting 
events to result in higher yields and higher volatility for this day, deeply subordinated, but in particular for the 81 bond segment. And I think that what we are going to see here is potentially a, a, a higher differentiation and so a decompression between the different layers of the capital structure in general. What we would also expect within um, the specific 81 bond sector is that we're going to see the market starting to differentiate between the stronger issuer and the weaker issuer, which was not the case during the rally, which we have seen in the past couple of months. So actually, what we, uh, we think is that it's a bit too early now to add exposure to the asset class, to the 81 asset class, because the, actually the market is all over the place. We have to monitor the valuation closely for potential opportunities ahead. Uh, at the same time, at this time of turmoil, we do think that investors should not sell off the existing position in solid banks, because this is a less liquid and a stress market, and they should hold for them for now. And we will keep monitoring the market and keep you informed. Thank you so much, Elena. We got to keep moving here. I just, I want to just draw a little bit of a line under the, the banking situation and, and, and go on to Dean. But, you know, we have seen, so first we got a great question, which is, you know, I thought higher interest rates were supposed to be good for banks and bank earnings. You know, one of the reasons that uh, we've seen some of this turmoil probably is the speed with which interest rates uh, rose. They rose really rapidly and some banks, uh, like Silicon Valley Bank, simply uh, bet too big that rates would stay longer or lower for longer, and that and that led to problems. But you know, I think the main point here is that what we've seen regulators and governments do is take whatever it takes measures now to try and make sure that the faith in the global financial system remains rock solid. So now I'm going to turn it over to Dean and maybe you can start with, you know, yes, we've seen some whatever it takes measures. Are they going to be enough? And what is the result going to be? Yeah, sure. Um, look, as, as you said, Mark, you know, central banks, they've acted with the speed and conviction of which we would like to hope to have seen. Um, but to say, uh, has a line been drawn under, under this crisis? Well, if we think back to 2008, the global financial crisis, confidence was really only restored once investors had confidence that uh, liquidity positions and crucially the solvency of the banking sector was uh, was an under threat and as we've heard from sasha um you know in terms of solvency we don't think there's a systemic problem here um and on the liquidity side we've seen some very very forceful action from central banks this week um in order to ensure that we don't have another liquidity crisis so look it's too early to conclude that it's uh, that a line has been drawn under under this, but certainly the measures we've seen uh, put in place uh, should give us some hope. Now, in terms of, you know, what does that mean for the economic outlook? Look, the focus here is clearly going to be on the bank lending channel. Um, this is coming at a time when credit conditions have already been tightening in response to those interest rate hikes that we've had over the past, uh, past 12 months or so. 
Now, you know, each economy is different. And, you know, historically, Europe, say, has been more dependent on bank lending uh, than, say, the U.S. has in order to uh, fund, uh, uh, fund businesses. But what that overlooks is the importance of the SME sector. You know, most job creation in any economy happens uh, within the, the small and medium enterprises. And bank lending is a very important to that sector in particular. Now, as I said, we've had a tightening in lending standards, and that's factored into our outlook for growth this year, which is why we're expecting to see below-trend growth across most, uh, most economies. But I think it'd be naive to assume that we're not going to see a further tightening from here. So downward pressure on the outlook, uh, on the outlook for, for lending going forward, I think, uh, I, I think is a reasonable assumption to make. Now, what does that mean in terms of the overall outlook? I wouldn't be expecting that you know, this is a kind of 2008 event. But certainly a modest tightening in lending standards will mean slower growth, at least at least for, for now. Now, slower growth, it does come with, uh, with an impact on inflation. And I think one of the things we shouldn't forget um, is, uh, is, is, is that with inflation likely to come down, if we do get slightly weaker, weaker growth in the second half this year, that's probably going to add to the downward pressure that we're seeing on price rises at the moment. Now, in terms of what that means for central banks, look, you know, clearly a very important week. Uh, last week, we had the European Central Bank decided to stay the course and hike by 50 basis points. Um, we're expecting that in the major central bank meetings this week, we'll see the same. Uh, you know, central banks will use their financial stability tools in order to address what's been happening within the banking sector. But meanwhile, they do still have to focus on the inflation narrative, which, you know, for all, for all said and done, and we are expecting that inflation comes down, but it is still higher today. So we should expect that uh, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England and the, and the SMB all go ahead with uh, rate hike this week. But what it probably does mean is that expectations of where peak rates were likely to be are likely to come down a little bit because not as much tightening will be needed in order to get inflation back on a sustainable 2% path. All right. So just to uh, kind of build on that a little bit, you know, what, what we saw, I would say, from the ECB last week is a choice to separate kind of the, the banking issues from the monetary policy inflation issues. And, you know, now we're waiting to, everybody is waiting to figure out if the Fed does the same thing this week, right? So, um, you know, it gets a little boring saying it matters so much what the Federal Reserve is doing, but unfortunately that's the world that we're living in because it, these policy decisions have enormous weight right now. And, you know, what Dean is saying on the one hand, the, uh, the fact that this, turmoil has happened in the banking sector will at the margin reduce lending and therefore put a little bit of a break. We don't know how much exactly, but we think it's a little bit of a break on the economy and therefore inflation. And at the margin, that the probability is now higher that central banks will not have to hike you know, as much. So that would be a positive potentially uh, for for the for the economy and for risk assets. On the other hand, you know, if they incorrectly separate these issues and they hike too much despite the the turmoil that's going on, that raises the probability of a down downside event. And so that's why this decision, uh, and we won't even know how the 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 right or wrongness of that decision right away 
that's what that's what investors are really focused on this week. So with uh, with all that economic and, and banking background, Karen, why don't you take us through a little bit how we're investing right now based on the current position, the current things we're seeing? Well, thanks, Mark. Well, I think a clear beneficiary in this environment is the higher quality end of fixed income. And if you take the two scenarios that you just described, you know, either we've got central banks responding to weaker late rates of lending into the economy and thinking about peaking interest rates sooner or cutting them sooner, or we see them make a mistake and then expectations for economic growth come down. In both of those circumstances, high quality fixed incomes or high grade and investment grade bonds should perform well because investors will start to price in future interest rate cuts. We know that many investors have been holding cash uh, for quite a while, and that's been a good thing to do while rates have been rising and while we've had so much volatility in both equity and bond markets. But we think we may be coming close to that point at which we're going to get the sort of best yields you're going to get in this cycle. So we think that this is a good time for investors who are holding cash to be locking that into uh, some fixed income assets. In terms of the specific places within fixed income, uh, then we, as I said, high grade and investment grade bonds. And we also see some select opportunities uh, in emerging market credit as well, a bit more at the riskier end um, of the spectrum, but should be relatively more insulated from some of the specific issues we've been talking today. And yields are relatively attractive there um, as well. So we think a high, high quality fixed income is a clear um, beneficiary. Then if we look within uh, the equity markets, um, we're neutral overall uh, on equities, but we do see some regional divergences emerging. As Sasha commented earlier, and we have got uh, a lot of the banking issues being concentrated within the U.S. and within the U.S. regional banks, and those are quite important for uh, lending into the U.S. economy, and particularly for small and medium-sized enterprises, which make up the bulk of the U.S. economy. And we think that that means that you're going to see this slow down you know, in the U.S., and that means that we are uh, least preferred on U.S. Uh, equities. Um, you're going to get slower earnings growth and valuations, of course, in the U.S. are more expensive than they are elsewhere. Our preference would be for emerging markets at this time because you've got that clearer macroeconomic support from uh, China's growth and, again, relatively uh, insulated from some of these specific issues that we've been uh, discussing. And then lastly, in currencies, um, we think that this is a time when and the U.S. dollar, it is strong because it's always attracting outflows during these periods of uh, economic turbulence. Um, but we are likely to see that dollar weaken over the course of the year. It's very overvalued. And if we've got the Fed now starting to have to cut interest rates and that interest rate and growth premium that the U.S. has had over the rest of the world, if that starts to erode, then we think that the dollar can't stay this overvalued. So we think that investors should look, about, uh, look at ways that they can diversify a U.S. dollar exposure or enter into strategies that can benefit if the dollar weakens. Um, on a relative basis, we're preferring the euro, the Swiss franc, uh, gold, and the Australian dollar which is our, our preferred currency, given the link to China. All right. Now we get to the my favorite part of everything, where we just uh, rapid fire, or as rapid fire as we can, take questions that you all are sending in live to us. I will, uh, I'll kick it off. We've got such a list of questions. I'm basically going to ask people to answer the questions they want, but I'll start with one because it fits with what Karen was just saying. Uh, you know, questions about why is the SNB expected to raise interest rates, um, you know, at, at, given all the things that are, are going on? And, uh, you know, the short answer, I think, is they can, right? They want to stay focused on inflation. Uh, they, they, 
Does Switzerland have an inflation problem? Well, relative to other countries, no. But, you know, they want to keep it that way, and they can. And as, as we described, you know, for, for the ECB, Switzerland has worked very hard to separate banking from monetary policy around in inflation. I guess ultimately we'll see the uh, success or failure of that concept. However, so far it looks to be working. Um, with that, you know, I'll just, like I said, free for all, given the number of questions coming in, does anybody want to take a stab at their favorite question? Well, well maybe I can jump uh, in. Ahead. I can see this one on uh, see this one on the technology side of things. So we had this question about tech doing relatively well, you know, through this uh, through the sell off, and it's true it has been an outperforming sector, and people have moved into that because of the sort of perceptions that this is going to be more of a secular growth place. And maybe if the earnings on the sixth core side of the economy are coming down, then you're going to see more secular growth in tech. And of course, that headwind from higher interest rates, it does seem to be easing um, if, uh, you know, what we see what we see and what we hear from Dean um, comes through. Now, however, we do remain cautious on tech. It's the least preferred sector for us. And we think that the valuations didn't adjust enough to uh, account for the increase in interest rates that we've had already. So we think that there is still quite a valuation premium in there. And then if and when we do get this economic downturn in the US, um, I think some investors may be surprised at the extent to which a lot of technology businesses are in fact cyclical. Of course, many of them are um, exposed to corporate uh, spending or they're exposed to uh, advertising revenues. These are cyclical uh, revenue streams. And although tech has you know, built up a fantastic reputation as a cyclical, secular growth play over the past decade because of very strong rates of growth, um, in the event of an economic downturn, some of those revenue streams will be affected. So tech has done well, but it's remain, we remain cautious and recommend tilting into other sectors. And we think things like consumer staples would be a better defensive play at this time. Okay. Uh, thank, thank you on that. I guess we've got a question on uh, China and China's GDP and what the read across is for the dollar. Um, Dean, do you want to jump on that one? Yeah, sure. Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, look, historically, the dollar has been seen as a safe haven uh, currency. And, you know, as, as the question alludes to, if uh, China's uh, China's growth target seems somewhat underwhelming. So wouldn't that mean that uh, investors would like to be cautious? I think that has to be balanced, though, by the fact that when we're looking at the valuation of the US dollar, there's clearly a premium that's still in there already. And the rate environment in the US will, will is likely to change, or expectations of the rate environment, perhaps I should say, is likely to change quite a bit over the next few months. And both of those factors, in our view, suggest that you know investors' willingness to hold on to what is an expensive asset in terms of the US dollar will start to diminish. So we still see currencies such as the euro and and even and even sterling uh, a little bit higher against the US dollar by by the year end. Thank you. And, you know, again, we it, everything is relative, right? I think China's growth historically may be based on what GDP has been in the past is low. However, it's it's uh, we expect it to be an anchor for the economy this year relative to some of the other uh, regions. And, you know, we've got a question here on contagion into the private debt markets, and I think talking about private assets, you know, is so important because we have seen uh, some funds readjust or adjust the marks on their private 
asset portfolios, and we get a lot of questions about this. So look, there's no question that private uh, markets, real estate, you know, commercial real estate, uh, private debt, private equity, all those things, you know, may still face some markdowns. However, it's, it's simply a different, you know, it's different than looking at public e equities usually because it really matters what firms you work with and the specific portfolios uh, that, you're, that you're dealing with. And, you know, because they differ vastly, investment uh, styles and regions differ vastly. And so you have to go fund by fund there. But what is most important, I think, for our clients to understand is that paradoxically, when you get these big sell-offs in public markets, and then, of course, you get a follow-on from the private asset market, uh, that is really the best time to start investing in funds that are launching, right? Because you are beginning to put money to work uh, at a time when these assets are distressed and there are opportunities there. So I get frustrated when people don't separate what the headlines say from the idea of committing capital at what could be the best time for some of the best private equity funds that are, that are out there. Uh, so I want to make that point. Why don't, why don't we keep going? Um, we've got a question on, on gold and Karen, you were talking about uh, cur currencies. And uh, so, you know, why don't you just touch on the gold there again? Yeah, so gold's been performing really well through this, um, I think, uh, as a safe haven uh, during periods of financial sector turmoil. Um, clearly has some uh, appeal to, to to many investors. Um, we think gold will keep uh, appreciating from here. So we're targeting that we get to uh, 2100 um, by the beginning of uh, next year. It's not too much above today's levels, but we've obviously rallied very, very sharply um, in the past uh, past few few days. I mean, if you think about some of the drivers for gold, typically falling interest rates are supportive for gold, and it does seem like we're more likely um, to see those lower interest rates coming sooner um, as a result of uh, some of the uh, events that we're seeing. You know, we've still got some of these geopolitical events uh, happening uh, in the background um, as well. And if the dollar weakens, um, as Dean just described, of course, gold is denominated in dollars, so dollar weakness will sort of help boost the gold price. Um, I think what's one sort of note of caution why it shouldn't necessarily appreciate massively further is, of course, that inflation has also been a supportive factor for gold. And if we do see inflation starting to come down, then that would that tailwind for gold would be um, removed. But generally, we think there are supportive factors overall for gold. And we think that's one area that people who are holding excess U.S. dollars should look to diversify into um, as both a safe haven play and as a currency diversifier. All right. Thank you, Karen. Now we're getting a lot of questions on these AT1 bonds and Elena's the expert and she covered it. Um, but look, I think a, a, an important thing here is to note that what happened yesterday was a lot of people who hold AT1 bonds went back to read what they actually signed up to. And Europe, European regulators and European uh yeah, European regulators have gone out of their way to also describe that if you do read the documents, the the AT1 bonds in Switzerland 
had some unique characteristics that made them different. And I think that as people sift through that, you know, there may be differences in the way that people look at these, these bonds, but uh, it, it's important to realize that the uh, people are kind of really digging into the weeds now and they're get, they're, they may be making finer distinctions, but, you know, I think that uh, what, what we can say is that what happened uh, with the AT1 bonds is not something that should create a fundamental distrust in the economic system that the rules uh, of engagement have been fundamentally changed or, or something like that. I don't, I don't know, Elena, if you can say that uh, with more precision. I also don't think, you know, given the fact that this information is getting out there over time that we need to dominate the rest of the call with this, but, you know, is there anything else you want to say on the subject? I fully agree with you, Mark. The legislation in the perspectives of the bond is clear. And then what we have seen in Switzerland is that the recently announced government support, uh, which has been granted, uh, has basically led to a complete write-down of, of the notes. It is, it is normal. It's a normal factor. What, the moment that state support intervene, the most subordinate part of the capital structure is going to take the losses. And, and that, that's all stated in the prospectuses, so it's pretty clear. All right, then maybe finally, uh, Dean, can you just take us back? We've had some more questions about U.S. inflation. Can we've got time for this one last question? So if you could take us oh. out. <laughs> yeah, sure, no problem at all. Um, look, so the, the question is, where, where's in U.S. inflation likely to end up at the uh, by the end of this year? Look, we're still expecting that inflation will fall quite quickly uh, in in the coming months. Now, what we've seen in the most recent inflation prints uh, has been that some of the components, such as owner's equivalent rent, which makes up around 40% of the CPI basket, still continues to put upward pressure on the overall headline index. But that will start to fade quite quickly in the coming months. So it would be our expectation that by the time we get to the end of this year, that in, um, inflation in the US or headline inflation will be printing with you know, somewhere below 3%, uh, somewhere between the 2 and 3% range. All right, thank you. So look, we've reached the end of our time. Again, honor and privilege for us to speak directly with you, our clients, in this format. We hope it's efficient and effective for you, uh, and we look forward to joining you again soon. Bye-bye. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.